0: Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. In this episode, we're going to learn about the revolutionary philosophy of Marxism.
1: America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards
0: socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a worker's government on a socialist program. We're publishing a presentation by Alan Woods, a leading comrade of the international Marxist tendency. He gave this speech at the 2018 book launch of The Revolutionary Philosophy of Marxism, a selection of writings on dialectical materialism. If you like what you hear and want to deepen your grasp of these ideas, you can pick up your copy at marxistbooks.com.
1: Perhaps the first uh, question that uh, comes to mind is why? Why discuss philosophy? Do we need philosophy? Philosophy, of course, is a way of thinking which is not the ordinary type of day-to-day thinking, but it's a kind of thinking which seeks to go beyond that, that poses the big questions, which, by the way, sooner or later, One time or another in people's lives, people do think about these questions, think more deeply about the nature of life, why we're here, what is the meaning of the universe, and so on. Philosophy, if you ask me, is it necessary? Well, for 99% of everyday activities, you you don't have to bother your mind about this. Other, more simple forms of thought are perfectly uh, adequate. But you see, when somebody says to me, well, I don't need a philosophy, I I don't have a philosophy. That is a mistake. Philosophy is a way of looking at the world, of looking at life, of interpreting life, interpreting the world we live in. And the person that says to me, I do not have a philosophy, I say to that person, you do have a philosophy. And all that you're saying to me, when you say I don't have a philosophy, all you're saying to me is that person will repeat thoughtlessly, like a parrot, without any understanding, without any serious thought, they will repeat the ideas, the religion, the morality, the beliefs, the prejudices, which surround them in this society from the moment that they are born to the moment that they die. Now, if you are quite happy with this society that we live in, with its morality, with its values and all the rest of it, I have nothing further to say to you, you may leave. (laughs) But if, like myself, you are not satisfied, you're definitely dissatisfied with the existing state of affairs and wish to change it, then, my friend, you need a philosophy. You need a revolutionary philosophy. A philosophy which is an instrument, which is a weapon, a powerful weapon in our hands to change the existing state of affairs. And the only coherent, consistent, profound, and true revolutionary philosophy of which I am acquainted is the philosophy of Marxism, which goes by the name, which sometimes these words frighten people, they shouldn't do, but they do, of dialectical materialism. Incidentally, you see, too often I find that perfectly good comrades and very hardworking, sincere, dedicated revolutionaries, but they don't really take the trouble to study Marxism as it should be studied. They think they're Marxist, they believe that they're Marxist, but they've never bothered to study Marxism as a science, and Marxism is a science and deserves to be studied as a science. Too often, people skate over it, you know. They skate over the surface, repeat a few slogans, they think that's sufficient. That is not sufficient. Marxism, let's remember, began as a philosophy, and Marxism is fundamentally a philosophy. Lenin made the point that without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary party. This is the foundation of the edifice, if you like. Without the bedrock of theory, you won't go very far as a Marxist. And therefore, it's the duty of every comrade that aspires to be a revolutionary to make the effort to study the ideas of Marxism, not just the economics, not just the politics, not just the, the, the historical side, but above all, this fundamental bedrock, this foundation of, of our movement, which is dialectical materialism. Now, uh, what, what do these words mean? They seem to be a bit bewildering. Of course, in any science, Marxism is, is a science. Of course, of course, there are sciences and sciences. Marxism, it's not an exact science in the same sense as maybe astronomy or something like that. But there are all kinds of sciences. I won't go, I won't go into that question. But Marxism is certainly a science. And like all sciences, it has its own terminology and uses words perhaps sometimes a, a little bit differently to what you would in everyday life. For example, if I say that somebody is an idealist, what impression do you have? Nice, kind person that helps old ladies to cross the road, doesn't kick the cat, doesn't tell lies and so on, and drinks in moderation, is a strict vegetarian, and I things of this, is, this is sort of a man of high principle, this is an idealist, you know. Like Donald Trump, for example. You know? <laughs> Well, perhaps not, perhaps not. No. No. Donald Trump perhaps would form part of the second category. When I say a man is a materialist, what do we say? A horrible, unprincipled bastard, a liar, a cheat, somebody who eats too much, drinks too much, performs other bodily functions which shan't be mentioned in polite company, too much. Okay, a materialist. Of course, that's the everyday understanding. But philosophy is different. There's nothing whatsoever to do with philosophical idealism and philosophical materialism. All that uh, idealism, in a philosophical sense, means an idea which maintains the primacy of ideas, or more correctly, the idea. Plato, for example, was a great philosopher. You can learn a lot from his writings. Great dialectician. But he was an idealist who believed that all of the world that exists is merely a crude, imperfect copy of some perfect being that existed, I don't know where, in the nth dimension before the world existed. Now there's a word for this entity, and that word is God. Hegel was an idealist. In his uh, writings in The Science of Logic and so on, the ultimate aim is to establish the the absolute idea, of which Marx commented ironically, that the only thing we learn from Hegel about the absolute idea is that he says absolutely nothing about it. But, uh, and in fact, Feuerbach stated correctly that this is God. It's another word for God, you know idealism, in all its different forms, ultimately is religious thinking. Materialism, on the other hand, philosophical materialism means the primacy of matter. as I said, there's only one thing that exists, and that is the material universe. Engel stated that uh, motion, movement, change, is the mode of existence of matter. Modern science has demonstrated this. Well, you can go further than that now. Einstein proved in 1905, the special theory of relativity, matter and energy are the same. They are the same. Light is is matter. It's both a wave and a particle. By the way, that's dialectical, unity of opposites. How can something be both a wave And a particle, it seems to be illogical. From the standpoint of formal logic, it is illogical. From the standpoint of dialectical thinking, not, as I will explain. But anyway, these two great schools uh, existed for the last 2,500 years. Both of them are great. Both of them have contributed enormously to the sum total of human wisdom, idealism, and materialism. Incidentally, today, many people, most people, I think, if they consider philosophy at all then they either treated with contempt or most of them with complete indifference. By the way, is there any student of philosophy, anyone studying philosophy at university? Put your hand up. No? They're ashamed to admit. Oh, there's one, there's one, there we are. A very courageous female comment actually admits to studying philosophy in the university. I'm sure that, you, that people go to university with a, with, with full of illusions and full of enthusiasm to study this beautiful subject. It is a beautiful subject. It ought to be a beautiful subject. Unfortunately, and I think you will agree with me, the type of philosophy that's taught in university is now bourgeois philosophy, is neither beautiful, interesting, or important. You know, it is, to be blunt, a complete and utter waste of time. Don't tell your tutor I said that because you you won't get good marks for your essay. But it never, it's it's true. For the last hundred years or more, bourgeois philosophy, as far as I am concerned, and I've attempted to look at it, represents an an arid desert without even a trace of life to it, with, with no interest, fiddling and piddling around with words and the definitions of words, and God knows what, formalistic To the nth degree, so that philosophy certainly deserves contempt. The latest craze, what's it? Postmodernism. Jesus, it's Christ. (laughs) Post Postmodernism, as the Germans would say, that is kind of philosophy. That is in the Krankheit. That's not a philosophy. It's a sickness. (laughs) And what really annoys me about this is they're so arrogant. They treat all the great philosophies of the past with a complete contempt. Now, that is a, a, a criminal. That's a hanging offence. Because philosophy for, for 2,000 years, yes, was an enormously uh, inspiring and interesting and fruitful. That, that is a fruitful study. The Greeks alone were geniuses. You know, they worked out that the world was round. They even worked out the idea of evolution. Anaximander worked out that man had developed from a fish through studying fossils and these were geniuses. And by the way, without any modern technology, without any machines, only with one machine, this, their heads, they, they made colossal discoveries. And the other great philosophers, Spinoza, Hegel, of course, my hero, was treated with utter contempt, wrongly so. He was, this man was a giant. And it's not an accident that Marx and Engels, of course, started out as Hegelians. They were Hegelians. And Hegel's writings, which I've been studying now for many years. It's true, they're quite difficult to read, but they contain profound insight, the most profound insights you can imagine. Of course, Hegel's problem was that he was an idealist. Now, I'll come to that in a minute. Let's go back to the Greeks. By the way, it it, it is a prejudice, Hegel said, it's a prejudice that logic teaches you how to think. It's just as false as saying that physiology teaches us how to digest. You don't have to learn the rules of anatomy in order to digest your dinner, and you don't need to study formal logic or dialectics in order to think. Men and women thought, and even thought quite logically and quite dialectically, long before these laws were finally written down and developed. You can actually find the elements of dialectical thought, even in in early religion, specifically Hinduism, Buddhism, to some extent Aztec religion, and so on. Yes, but these are very primitive, undeveloped dialectics. It's guesswork. Where philosophy really comes into its own for the first time is precisely with the Greeks. Because prior to that, all the ideas about the creation of the universe, they all depended on the gods. But the Babylonian Marduk who created the world and so on. For the first time with the Greeks, human beings began to try to explain the world without gods, without any aid of any superficial... Uh, entity or interference at all, just purely in terms of what they saw, what they could experiment, and of course, this wonderful, you know, that's the most complicated thing in the whole universe, you know, our brain. It's a fact. It is the most complex thing that exists in the entire universe. And with this marvelous instrument, they made brilliant brilliant discoveries. Now, an early outstanding proponent of dialectics was Heraclitus. Here's a man, a genius, I've uh, read his collected works. I've got them at home. They're about 20 or 30 pages. That's all. Uh, axioms, uh, uh, anecdotes. There's no formal, there's just bits and pieces that happen to survive. That's true of many ancient philosophers. But these aphorisms show a wonderful dialectical understanding. And yet, of course, he wasn't generally understood. Same as Hegel. Nobody but the people didn't understand Hegel. Difficult to, to read. At the time, uh, people actually described him as Heraclitus the Dark. <laughs> that includes actually Socrates. He was asked, what do you think of Heraclitus? And he said, he made a wonderful reply. He said, well, the part which I have understood is excellent, and I'm sure the rest is also. <laughs> because." The, and he knew this, and I think he was quite proud of it. I think Hegel was the same, actually. You know, He couldn't, he couldn't care a damn what people thought about his ideas, you know. He was quite uh, contemptuous of, of people that couldn't understand. Uh, he actually said at one point a, a brilliant phrase Eyes and ears are bad witnesses for men that have barbarian souls. Now, what does that mean? Barbarian, Varvaros in Greek, means somebody who cannot understand the Greek language. Eyes and ears are bad witnesses for men who do not understand the language. In other you can have the facts, you can see the facts in front of your nose, through your eyes and your, through your senses, but you do not understand what you're looking at. You haven't understood. This is a- an answer to empiricism. The Americans and the British, of course, are, are, they're uh, allergic to, to broad theoretical general. That's one of the problems. That's why there's no real American philosopher. I would say, since since Locke and uh, and Hobbes, there's been no real British philosophers either. Empiricism, the facts, just the the world as we see it. Yes, but the facts are not, and the world as we see it, it doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story. For example, so look no further. Our senses tell us with absolute certainty that the world is flat. We know the world is not flat. This question of sense perception, of empiricism, and so on and so forth. Heraclitus was contemptuous of that. He said, nature loves to hide. You know, he also said, a man who goes in search of gold must dig up a lot of dirt and find a little. In other words, what you have immediately before you is not sufficient to really understand what is taking place. And he went on. Marvelous, uh, profound expressions, which are staggering. No wonder, no wonder people thought he was mad. He said, we are and are not. We step and do not step into the stream. Think about it. You put your toe into the stream, the stream's gone. So you're no longer stepping in the same stream. The stream has changed. And he said, uh, everything is and is not because everything is in flux. Everything is fluid. Now, there's a profound statement. 2,000 years before modern science. He said, everything is fluid. Everything is in flux. Now, this contradicts what we call sound common sense, doesn't it, you know? What do you mean everything is and is not? Everything is, or is it? Heraclitus says no, because everything is constantly, it's in flux. Is this true? It's counterintuitive. It, that goes against what your eyes and ears tell us. For example, this table is, that's not fluid, it's solid. And the ground, everything is solid, it doesn't it doesn't. But modern science precisely informs us that on the contrary, this table is not solid. It's made up of a vast, unimaginable number of atoms and subatomic particles moving at colossal uh, speeds close to the speed of light. Of course, the Greeks couldn't, uh, Heraclitus couldn't know that precisely, but he worked it out correctly. Everything is constantly changing. Now, there is our starting point. Hegel said that uh, there's not a single proposition of Heraclitus which is not in my science of logic but here we have a problem now for those people that feel a bit intimidated I hope you won't by the end of the session you've got this marvelous book to help you for those who feel a bit intimidated don't worry I'm here to assure you that the basic ideas of Marxism and the basic ideas of Marxist philosophy are very simple ideas like all great ideas are essentially simple ideas and they are beautiful in their simplicity and profound in their simplicity. Nevertheless, I have to admit that there are certain problems here. There are certain barriers facing the student of Marxist philosophy. Mm-hmm. The first problem is that, of course, the most elaborate, the, 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 the most complete exposition of dialectical laws is still to be found in Hegel. Marx did intend to write, he said this, he intended to produce a small book which would contain, he said, the rational kernel of, of Hegel's thought for the general public. He never got around to it because he was uh, busy writing Capital. He died having just finished the first volume. Engels, I am certain, intended to do the same thing, and I am also certain that The Dialectics of Nature, which you should all read, was intended to be the first part of this work. Unfortunately, Engels, again, was stuck finishing the last two volumes of Capital therefore was not able to do this. For what it's worth, I've been intending for many years to write such a work, explaining the, the basic ideas of Hegel, I hope, in intelligible language. Unfortunately, Hegel did not write in an intelligible language. His great masterpieces two massive volumes called The Science of Logic, which is the essential book. Lenin once said, when he read this in 1915 in Switzerland, he says it's the best way of getting a headache And Engels described Hegel's writings as abstract and abstruse. The reason being, I think, to a large extent, precisely the uh, idealism of Hegel. It introduced a certain element of mysticism, which shouldn't be there. But despite this, and despite the difficulties, in Hegel's writings, there is a mass of uh, very important dialectical material. In point of fact, very frequently, I think he comes close to materialism, but then he backs off for logical reasons, particularly I'm thinking of the philosophy of history. It comes close to uh, historical materialism. Engels said that Hegel's work was the biggest miscarriage in history. He came so close to it, but he could not make that final step because of his idealist and uh, religious uh, prejudices. So what is dialectics? Well, let's go back to the, uh, the first idea, of course, which is a marvelous idea which is completely borne out by all of modern science is precisely that everything flows, as Heraclitus said. Everything, without exception, is in a constant state of change, constant ferment, and so on and so forth. That's the first uh, element. We know, for example, in, in Marx's day, before Marx, before Darwin, the species were considered to be immutable. God created the world in 70s. How many days? Sex, that's right. These guys know their Bible. Yes. God was a good trade unionist. <laughs> And on the seventh day, he rested. There's many American workers that would like to have that uh, privilege, you know, and British ones also, you know. God created everything, created all the species. They all went in two, two by two into Noah's Ark. And so, of course, when they began to discover skeletons of dinosaurs and so on, uh, didn't quite fit into Noah's Ark. Darwin, of course, came along and provided them the explanation that no, 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 no. The species are not separate, they've evolved, they've changed, and they've changed, one species changed into another species, culminating ultimately with the human race. We are animals. Yes, but we're very special animals. There's less than 2% separating us from bonobo chimpanzees. Nevertheless, that, uh, that's a question of quantity and quality, which I'll deal with in a moment. That two part, less than 2% is decisive. That tiny uh, quantitative difference produces a qualitative leap of course, that's not fashionable to say that nowadays. You know, the, the, the postmodernists insist there's no such thing as progress. You know this. What they really mean to say is that the progress is impossible under capitalism at the present time. That would be correct to say that. But they're not prepared to say that. Oh no, 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 no. Progress in general doesn't exist. And you mustn't insult the the monkeys or the uh, or the alligators or uh, or even the microbes by referring to progress. I mean, for goodness' sake. Just imagine, there's no progress since the days when microbes dominated the planet to Einstein and, uh, and Beethoven and Trotsky, and Trotsky yes. <laughs> you know, there's no progress. Now, it's, and I would hate to offend anybody's sensitivities, and I hope that no microbe present will take offense <laughs> at my remarks. But frankly, I'm very sorry, my friends. I beg to differ. There is progress, for Jesus Christ's sake. Excuse my French there is progress you imbeciles (laughs) if you except with those people there's no progress with them that's perfectly true they're on a primitive level of understanding but anyway there is this uh, development uh, uh, has taken place darwin demonstrated this marx admired darwin's achievement Uh, but everything changes yes and of course this goes against our old friend sound common sense now Before we proceed, I must uh, congratulate the comments on this marvelous initiative. I mean, this is really a marvelous selection of uh, basic works of Marxism on philosophy. It is possible, by the way, to acquire a good knowledge of dialectical materialism without reading Hegel. Unfortunately, you'd have to read all the works of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky, and that's about 150 hefty volumes. So if you've got time to to do that, then you will have acquired a sound knowledge. But uh, that's a bit difficult, isn't it, you know? Therefore, this selection, I think, is a very good uh, initiative that the American Commons have taken. I was pleased to see that they included a, a marvellous little article. It's the best thing you could read to start with. Trotsky's ABC of materialist dialectics. It's marvellous. And that's a, a critique of the basic ideas of formal logic, which goes back to Aristotle, the Aristotelian in sy- syllogism. Uh, a equals A, law of identity. A is not, not A, law of contradiction. A is not B, law of the excluded middle. And that's, that has been the basis of all uh, logical thought, for the, philosophical thought, for 2,000 years. Well, there's been a few minor adjustments, but they still cling to this idea. A is A, the law of it. Ed- By the way, if you think about it, it's a bit of a swindle, this syllogism, as Hegel pointed out. Because those three, uh, apparently they're logical steps, they're n- no such thing. Because A is not B is already is already included in A is A. It's a, a repetition of A of the law of identity. Yes, but Trotsky explains that A is not A. It is, or more correctly, it is and is not. You know, for example, I'm I think I'm called Alan Woods. So the chairman said, yes, but I'm not the same Alan Woods that was started speaking a few minutes ago because trillions of changes have taken place since I started to speak, and therefore, I'm not the same person. Now, you can say, well, this is just uh, playing with words, because we all know that. Uh, yes, there are the small changes. They don't make any difference. Therefore, we can ignore them. Yes, but in the longer term, say in 20 years' time, 30 years' time, there'll be a big change, because I'm gonna be dead, you know. Oh, I was looking at a picture of myself the other day as a baby, you, think, you look at yourself as a baby. You say, well, that's me, is it you? That baby's dead. Yeah, yeah. Think about it. You think about it. The cells that made up that baby's uh, whole being have ceased to exist long ago. Now, you might think that that's progress or regression. I don't know. <laughs> that That is purely a matter of personal opinion. But, but that there's there an immense and qualitative change cannot be denied. At a certain point, quantity changes into quality. Now, Of course, the the vulgar mentality can't accept this idea of change. All all right, yes, I know. Nowadays, most educated men and women accept Darwin's theory of evolution, for example. Except in the United States. (laughs) Starting with the president and many other people who believe in creationism, well, you know, let them think whatever they wish. But uh, most people accept the idea of evolution. Yes, we've evolved. Most people accept the idea of evolution, but they don't understand evolution. And that's not surprising because Charles Darwin didn't really understand evolution. He didn't understand the mechanism, he didn't have access to uh, genetic theory and so on and so forth. He considered evolution was a long, uninterrupted, smooth, gradual evolution, okay? Without any changes, without, without any sudden changes. Now this is false. If you look at the evolution of species, it's true that there are long periods in which nothing apparently happens, what they call stasis, periods of stasis. But they're interrupted at certain intervals of millions of years, it's true. They're interrupted by violent explosions, characterized by the mass extinction of certain dominant species and the emergence of new species, without which, by the way, we wouldn't exist, without these evolutionary revolutions, because that's what they are. So that, that is not the, quite what Darwin uh, considered. But let's go back anyway. Most people accept in general the idea of change, but they don't understand it. And this idea that everything flows and everything is constantly changing, also, they don't understand that. For example, there is a famous uh, saying, you know? As solid as the ground under my feet. Yeah, you heard this expression? It's uh, common, it's taken as a kind of axiom. It's taken for granted to be true. It is not true. The ground under our feet is not solid. Beneath a, a very thin layer of rock and earth, it's when there are seething quantities of, of molten rock at colossal, unimaginable pressures and temperatures, trying to find a way out. This is a contradiction between form and content. bear bear that in mind the rock is holding it down it will hold it down for quite a long time but sooner or later as night follows day those forces will find a weak point in the earth's surface and they will erupt in the most cataclysmic events known to uh, humankind the city of san francisco anyone here from san francisco now we know from science the city of san francisco is based on a fault the san andreas fault isn't it the city of san francisco is condemned it's a condemned city Sooner or later, that will uh, erupt with with, with terrible consequences. It's impossible to predict. Geology, like Marxism, is not an exact science. We know that's going to occur. There's no means of knowing when it will occur. That it will occur, you better be sure of it, you know? Keep that analogy in mind, because there is an analogy between that and human society and revolutions. But I'll come back to that later. How would one define dialectics? In a very simple term, I would say that dialectics is the logic of contradiction you see for hundreds of years philosophy formal logic has tried to expel contradiction contradiction is not allowed to exist either either something is or it, or it is not they try to eliminate it dialectics on the other hand embraces contradiction now trotsky in the introduction to the uh, this article i referred to He says that dialectics is neither fiction nor mysticism but a science of the forms of our thinking insofar as it is not limited to the daily problems of life but attempts to arrive at an understanding of more complicated and drawn-out processes. That's a very adequate explanation. Formal logic, A is A, A is not, and so on, that is perfectly adequate for everyday purposes. You know, the other day, a young comrade in London, a student of philosophy, I think, he read Trotsky's uh, thing, and he he cornered his professor and said, yes, but the law of identity is wrong. And I was surprised at the intelligent reply of the professor, I must must congratulate this professor. He turned around and said, that's right. He said, that's right. It's not, the law of identity is not always right, but we have to start somewhere. (laughs) Now, that's a correct answer. The laws of formal logic do hold good. They're useful for everyday purposes. They're like, if you like, if you like to use an expression, they're like the, the, the table manners of, of, of thinking. It enables us to distinguish between what is true and what is false. President Trump could take a course in formal logic. It <laughs> wouldn't do him any harm, you know. <laughs> to distinguish between what is true and what is false, and this is true. Yes, but those laws break down at a certain point. They break down, the same as the laws of Newton, of classical mechanics, were were and are perfectly adequate to explain a a colossal amount of phenomena. But nevertheless, at a certain point, as Einstein explained and as quantum mechanics explains, they break down at a certain stage. And therefore, for example, they're adequate for everyday purposes, you know, for picking up chairs or even even for sending rockets to the planets. You can use Newtonian uh, laws for that. But when it comes to, at the very small scale, the the colossal acceleration of subatomic particles, you can't apply Newton's mechanics to that. You will not get the result. You need quantum mechanics for that. And quantum mechanics produces some very peculiar results. For example, light photons. Light is both a particle and a wave. Get your head around that. It's difficult. It's, that's not formal logic. That defies formal logic, but it's, it's true. And the science is based upon that, you know. Or, or, or relativity, dealing with vast uh, gravitational forces and so on. At a certain point, the, the, the Newton's laws don't apply. You have to, have to use the laws of, uh, of relativity theory. As a matter of fact, you could use... So I'm I'm told. You could use relativity theory for everyday uh, purposes, like uh, uh, moving this furniture around when the the meeting finishes. You could work it out. (laughs) Yes, but it would be a waste of time. Formal logic and elementary mechanics is is suitable for that. Now we come to the laws of uh, dialectics. Dialectics, I said, is, is the logic of contradiction. Everything contains a contradiction, it's a fact. Well, if you don't like the word contradiction, let's use another word: the inner tension, which is in here in, in all things, is what provides life, and movement, and development. Without that, uh, you, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have matter, you wouldn't have anything. Without this constant internal tension, the unity of opposites. That's an interesting thing. In nature, it seems to be a law. It is a law, actually. There's a kind of duality in things. Everything seems to go in pairs. The physicist Dirac predicted in the 1920s, I think, or 30s, that every particle, every subatomic particle, has got an antiparticle, another particle. And that's been shown to be correct. It goes in pairs, like left and right, odd and even, male and female. I know it's not fashionable to say this, but... You have a, a, a man and a woman. You have a male sperm and a female egg come together. This is the unity of opposites. So we all started as the unity of opposites, John. You know? The development of the cell, breaking up into, into other cells. And finally, of course, the law of quantity and quality. After nine months, precisely, you're born, or else the, the, the woman and the child will die. You can say that those are examples, but everything goes in pairs. It's a fact. Let me give you a case in point. What is is more interesting, these pairs are contradictory. For example, positrons and electrons are always found together. These particles are always found together. They have the same mass, but they have opposite charges. Positron is a negative charge. The electron has got uh, a positive charge. The other way around, is it? I always get them mixed up. Either way, either way, they have contradictory charges, okay? And yet, they're always together. Now, for example, you get the same thing within the atom. There are forces moving in, in the opposite direction to, to tear the atom apart. But there's, there's, there's another contradiction, which is the strong force and the weak force, which holds the, the, the nucleus, holds the atom together. And unless, of course, the nucleus becomes enlarged by the addition, I think, and by the other neutron, Whereupon it, it will eventually tear itself apart. It'll break. You'll have two, two, two nucleuses rushing apart in a, in a violent uh, explosion. Nuclear energy and so on. On a simpler level, just take a, a drop of water falling out of a, a tap. The kind of thing that keeps you awake at night. You know, The drop of water gradually increases in size until it reaches a critical point where one addition of one single drop of water and it will fall. It's reflected even in in, uh, proverbs. For example, the straw that broke the camel's back. How is it possible? A a, A straw cannot logically break a camel's back. Yes, but if you put one straw, another straw, another straw, you reach a critical point where, bang, you do break the camel's back. In other words, what we're discussing here is the dialectical law of quantity and quality, small insignificant changes produce reach a critical point where they produce a massive change. By the way, that's reflected in modern science, in uh, in chaos theory, the so-called butterfly effect, which is not strictly correct as it's as it stated. But the idea is that it's a, 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 an accumulation of small changes reaches a critical point where there's a fundamental change. It's known in modern physics as a phase transition. And that's a very important field of modern sciences. Now, I've got a confession to make. I've been studying uh, Marxist uh, philosophy since I was about 16 years of age. And I always felt that dialectics was correct. I, was, I always believed that it was correct. It seemed to make sense to me. But I must confess to you, I never believed it could be proven mathematically. That thought never entered my head. It seemed to be a brilliant uh, intuition that explained Many things. I'll tell you something, it has been proven. Now, there's a book written a few years ago, maybe still available, by an American uh, scientist called Mark Buchanan called Ubiquity. Anyone study Latin here? Ubique in Latin means everywhere. And ubiquity means ev- literally everywhere. Okay. In this book, Mark Buchanan explains, it isn't just him, by the way, this this is related to chaos theory and the derivatives of chaos theory, that phenomena as different as heart attacks, forest fires, probably the fire in uh, California would fall into that category, the movement of traffic, that's certainly the case in New York, as I've had experience to to discover, the growth of cities, the rise and fall of animal uh, populations, stock exchange crises, the outbreak of wars, I would add revolutions to that list, it's not only just avalanches, and a whole series of other things, all contain the same law. They're all governed by the same law, and they can be expressed by a mathematical equation, and my math is not good enough to understand this, but believe me, it's the case, and mathematical, an equation called a power law. Now this is precisely... The dialectical law of the transformation of quantity into quality. That's a a whole series of small, apparently insignificant changes reaches a critical point where you get a sudden, violent change taking place. And by the way, when, when you get to that critical point, any accidental phenomena can cause a change. I understand, for example, if you freeze water from 100 100 degrees centigrade to zero, just when it reaches zero, it's still liquid. But you just tap the glass. And that tap is sufficient for it to become a solid, which is a change of state. Accidental things. This was understood a long time ago. Aristotle understood this. He refers, for example, to the accidental words that lead to a quarrel. You've all had experience with this, you know, particularly uh, couples that have been together for many years and have been through many vicissitudes, <laughs> shall we say. And one day somebody in, in this, uh, make, make some reference, some silly reference of no particular importance, you know. Maybe there's too much sugar in the coffee or maybe you spilt milk down your front, which I tend to do at breakfast time, you know. And bang, <laughs> there's a terrible row. <laughs> Which is nothing, to, what, what the hell, what have I said? What's going on here, what the hell? Of course, it's not the word that caused this row. It's a whole accumulation of tensions that build up gradually, insignificant things until you reach a point where people have had enough and that's it, bang, is an explosion. Quantity changes into quality. And as Aristotle says, the accidental words that lead to, accident plays a role. It plays a role in history. Superficial observers who don't understand dialectics, don't understand this. They think that all oh, our, our postmodernist friends are uh, on that line, aren't they? They think that everything is accidents. There are no laws, no rules. You can't explain history. We didn't need them to tell us. Henry Ford said that years ago. You know what Henry Ford how he defined history? How he defined history? He said history is bunk. First definition. You know, you know, you can't understand it. Well, that's the same as the postmodernists. History is bunk. Secondly, he said, I really like this one. History says, that's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> Which is, I suppose it's true. <laughs> I suppose that is formally true. But there's no law. It's all accidents. It's, and therefore it's all down to individual factors. Not true. It is true that accidents play a role, in, an important role in history. Yes, but as detonators, as catalysts, For example, they're just celebrating. It's a bit sick. They're celebrating the end of the uh, First World War, which was a terrible uh, catastrophe. Millions of people were slaughtered for no good uh, reason, except for the interest of the rival imperialist powers. And, of course, the reserved wisdom is, what caused the First World War? Well, I've seen all kinds of... You know, this one woman actually came on the TV a few years ago. Seriously put forth the... It was all due to the fact that the, the Kaiser had a withered arm. <laughs> the poor chap, he had a withered arm, he had a, and therefore that gave him a complex, and therefore he, it led to the war. Naturally, I mean, uh, withered arms are dangerous things, you know, in uh, world politics, as you know. Absolute nonsense. The, but the more, more common explanation oh, no, it was caused by the assassination of the Austrian crown prince at Sarajevo, you know. This assassin comes up and bumps him up. Yeah, what would have happened if the, if the assassin would have missed? There wouldn't have been a war then there would have been a war another accident would have been but of course, Hegel expressed this what a genius that man was what a genius he said necessity reveals itself through accident that puts it in a nutshell the first war was built by, the, by the, an accumulation of t- tensions and contradictions between the imperialist powers there was a series of accidents before then each of which could have led to war but they didn't wasn't sufficiently matured until finally you reach that point where any accident can provoke an explosion how does this relate to the class struggle i hear you ask (laughs) when is he going to get down to business this man when is he going to come to the point all right i'll come to the point dialectics teaches us that sooner or later things turn into their opposite two years ago you look at the situation in america and you say well america Sources, revolution in America don't talk nonsense. Look, everything is, nothing's happening. Nothing is happening in America. True. And that's what most people, how they perceive it. Because they're looking at the surface. They're not looking below the surface. They're not looking at the processes that are building up. The discontent, the frustration, the rage beneath the surface, which doesn't find an expression, but it will find an expression. To some extent, in a reactionary, peculiar sense, even the election of Donald Trump reflected this enormous accumulation of anger, of discontent, of frustration, which is being held down like these forces, uh, subterranean forces held down by, by this thin... By the way, I didn't mention that. You know how thick the, the surface of the earth is that's protecting us from these forces? It's as thin as the skin of an apple. That's all. And these forces will find a a way through as night follows day. Yes, but if you're an empiric, you don't see this. Dialectics teaches us to look beyond appearances, beyond the facts, the facts, and look at the processes that are taking place, which can turn into their opposite. Now, let me give you an example. Any worker here present that's been through a strike will know what I'm talking about. You can have a factory where nothing has happened for 10, 20 years. There are no strikes, no movement, no interest. If a worker buys a newspaper, it's not to find out about the revolution or the crisis of capitalism. You go straight to the sports page, see what the baseball results are, you know? And the conversation and the fact that it wouldn't be about politics, it would be about uh, whatever, sport, football, women, men as the case might be, and so on. Not politics. And that, that can go on for a long time. And by the way, the bosses can inflict. Wage cuts, longer hours, Sack workers that are giving them trouble, you know, cause all kinds of, yes, and the workers don't react. And there's a minority of the activists who uh, think they understand what's going on, and they feel as if they're beating the head against the wall. They go to the workers, and the workers don't, they don't listen to them. They're not listening to me. They're not interested. Nine times out of ten, that's the case. Sometimes, unfortunately, the activists draw the wrong conclusion. Ah, no, the workers are never moved. Become cynical. Even, even sell out to the bosses. I've seen that happen also. Yes, and then you know what happens. One day, some minor incident. There's no hot water to make the coffee. A foreman swears at a, a woman worker, whatever. Apparently a smaller incident. Bang! They're out. And whereas normally at the trade union monthly meeting, I think they're monthly meetings, aren't they, John? If you're lucky, George. If you're like, well, in, in England they're supposed to be monthly. You get a handful of people going to these meetings. And by the way, I've never been at your, your union local, but I can tell you what they've said. Shall I tell you? In your local, you go there, and if you look around the room, there's so few people. Where are the others? Where? Always the same faces. Am I right? You know this. Always the same Where are the others? Why the hell don't they move? Yeah. And yet, suddenly. Over apparently insignificant questions, bang, they're out. And then the activists are left with their mouths open. What the the hell is happening? What's occurring? And the reason is it's precisely the accumulation of pinpricks, insults, humiliations, cuts in living standards, impositions of all sorts. It builds up and builds up to the point where the worker says, that's it. We are not taking anything anymore. And then you got a strike. It's really Trotsky explains. Every strike is a revolution in miniature. And by the way, people change into their opposites. In a strike, this happens many times. Think, Sam is present, I hope you will bear me out. Workers that you never thought would be interested. Maybe they vote Republic or maybe they're not interested. Religious, whatever. Do it in a strike, they change. The whole nature changes, the whole mentality changes. That is particularly the case with women. Women have, have been the leading force in many revolutions, and yet, women historically were excluded, practically, from all political life, and social life, and civic life, and culture, and so on. It's beginning to change now, but it was always the case in the past. And yet, whenever there was a movement, whenever there was a strike, we had a very good comrade called Jimmy Dean. He was a good trade union, he's dead, now, An old Trotskyist uh, veteran militant. He said, look, the most militant people in any strike of the women. You know what the Bible says? You do? You read it. <laughs> all of it? I read all of it. it. Took me a long time, many years. It's a very good book, I recommend it. It's got all kinds of wisdom and poetry and so on I was a bit disappointed by the ending. <laughs> you know, the world going up in flames or something. Anyway, you know, that's just a matter of opinion. What did the Bible say? For the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That's pure dialectics. The most backward people suddenly become the most advanced people, the most militant people. And this, he said, no, he said, w- women go on strike. The men, you see, they trade unions, they know the rules, they know the regular, you know the boundaries. Can't go, they can't do this, can't do that. Women don't understand that. What do you mean you can't? We're going to bloody well do it, and that's the end of it. You saw that in Russia in Petrograd in 1917. In, in uh, in the February Revolution, the women who had to bear the brunt of all the suffering and the terrible problems of the war they wanted to demonstrate on the streets. They went to the advanced Bolsheviks and asked for advice. And you know, they said, No, 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 don't do that. You'll be shot down. You won't succeed. But the women said, oh yeah. oh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> and they came out and, and they, they shamed the men to follow them. That's a fact of the matter. They shamed the men into following them into action. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I'll predict now you'll find that in in the States. Let's come to to the final point. I described the the forces of the nucleus held together, which are tearing it apart. But at a a certain point, that force which is holding things together can break down. It's the same in society. If you think about it, there are so many contradictions, crying contradictions in society. It has to be held together somehow. The force that holds it together is the state. And the state, as Lenin said, is armed bodies of men, police, the army, the prison service, the judges, and so on. It's by by terror, by fear, if you like, it's how people are held, kept in check. Yes, but if you also think about it, that's not enough. That isn't enough. That isn't the real glue. The real powerful glue that's holding society together is not the state, it's in people's heads the tremendous force of inertia, habit, routine, tradition. Yes, we've always lived like this. We've always done these things. Why should there be any change? Listen, be clear on this. The human consciousness is not revolutionary at all. It's not even progressive. Most people are afraid of change. They're afraid of it. It's like a leap into the dark and so on, and they will cling to the existing order, the familiar faces, the familiar institutions, the familiar political parties, the familiar well-known leaders, the familiar religions, they'll cling to that even when the situation becomes bad. They still cling to it, believing that things will change, things will get better, and so on, until that critical point is reached, where those illusions collapse, they break down. And that point, my friends, in the United States, in Britain, in Europe, on a world scale, is being reached now. With the crisis of capitalism, total impasse, 10 years since the, the, the collapse, they still have not found any way out. And therefore, for these last 10 years in particular, there has been everywhere, in America in particular, it's as plain as the nose on your face, an enormous, beneath the surface of apparent calm, an enormous accumulation of discontent, of bitterness, of feeling of injustice, of a hatred of the rich and of the present situation that exists, of a complete collapse of confidence in both the parties, Republicans and Democrats, and a search for a change. People are crying out for a change. Even the election of Obama represented that in a peculiar way. Even the election of of, of Trump reflects it in a peculiar way. But it's not finished. These are just stages that we're going through. The masses are desperately looking for a way out of the crisis. They're looking to the left. They're looking to the right. They're trying to find a way out. Many people got illusions in, in Trump because they're desperate to find a, a change. There'll be no change, of course. Of course, naturally. They have to pass through that, ha- that, that hard school. But at a certain point, the same is in the nucleus. Society here, it's already happening. That's what terrifies them. That's why they don't like Trump. Although he's a bourgeois, same as them. With his own inimitable uh, methods, of course, which they don't always appreciate. But nevertheless... They're terrified of a polarization to the left and to the right of American society. And Trump is he- helping. I think we should send him a letter. Send him a tweet, John. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. Carry on. Carry on doing what you're doing. You're the best uh, recruiting sergeant that we've got. <laughs> you know, there's a polarization. That's what they're frightened of a polarization. And ultimately, it's a class polarization. And of course, this opens up big possibilities for a revolutionary uh, organization in the States. The possibilities of building Marxism in the States have never been better than at, the, at the moment. And of course, it's ultimately, it's down to us. And I'll finish on this note. The possibilities are there. The road for revolutionary politics in the United States is wide open now in a way that it never was, I think ever in history. Now it depends on us, it depends on our determination to fill in the missing factor, which is the subjective factor, to build the revolutionary organization. And of course, the first step, and I'll finish on that, what what Lenin said. It is not possible, it is impossible to build a revolutionary party that's worth anything without revolutionary theory. And therefore, what we're doing today, this this weekend, is preparing the cadres, the ones and twos, who eventually will connect with a larger body of people, with the hundreds, the thousands, eventually with the millions, on the basis, and we start with this, of the unconquerable superiority and the power of ideas, which are the ideas of Marxism.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Socialist Revolution Podcast. The speaker on this episode, Alan Woods, wrote an introduction to the book The Revolutionary Philosophy of Marxism, which you should check out on our website socialistrevolution.org or with the link in the description. Or of course, you should just get your own copy of the full book from marxistbooks.com. Don't forget to hit the like button and to share our podcast with your friends and on social media. If you like what you heard, visit socialistrevolution.org to support our work by donating or subscribing to our magazine. Or why not get involved? We're living in an epoch of revolution. Get in touch through our website to talk to one of our comrades about getting involved in the fight for socialism in our lifetime.